This is the Mark Stucheski Podcast. He has climbed to the top of the tallest mountain on every continent, including Mount Everest. He's a worldwide adventurer who has traveled to 65 countries, written three books, and given keynote presentations to nearly 1 million live audience members. His new book is called The Warrior Challenge, Eight Quests for Boys to Grow Up with Kindness, Courage, and Grit. John Beatty, welcome to the podcast. Mark, thank you so much for having me on. I'm excited to be here. You know, one of the reasons, I'm going to be honest with you, I'm kind of selfish here. One of the reasons why I want you on this show is I am fascinated by people who have summited Mount Everest. And one of my goals in life, believe it or not, is happening right now. I'm actually talking to someone who actually stood at the very top of Mount Everest. This is something that not a lot of people can claim. So we're going to talk about that. But before we do, is there anything other than what I just told the people about you that you wanted to add to fill in the gaps for us? Oh, just that you're allowed to be selfish if you want, you know, like it's coronavirus time. Let's take some time for self-care. If that means you got to talk to an Everest climber, let's do it. <laughs> I love it. I love the attitude. So the the reason why I'm so fascinated by uh, climbing Mount Everest, there's two reasons. Number one, I always tell people that everyone needs to have what Jim Collins from Built to Last called a big, hairy, audacious goal, BHAG. And yeah. I always yeah. use the uh, reference of climbing, climbing Mount Everest. What is your Mount Everest? Even though you may never reach it, what is your big goal? And second of all, I think people are fascinated who actually know, and this is what I want you to talk about a little bit today, is what does it take to climb Mount Everest? Obviously, you didn't decide on a Thursday you're going to climb Mount Everest and you got your buddies together and you did it on that weekend. It's a big, long process, both physically, mentally, and financially. Am I correct? Oh, absolutely. Usually when you say to people like, I climbed Everest, they don't quite grasp the the massiveness of the mountain. I remember I was telling somebody I was about to go back uh, right before I climbed and they were like, Oh, Mount Everest. I love California. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a two month long climb and you're every day exhausted. It takes 10 days just to walk into base camp. Your body's acclimatizing. It's trying to produce more red blood cells, which is incredibly taxing on your system as it is just to be able to survive at these altitudes. You get up to 17,500 feet, and then you don't shoot straight for the summit in one push. You build your camps doing ladders up and down the mountains. So you go from base camp up to camp one, back down to base camp. Then up to camp two, back down to base camp. Each time you get to base camp, you spend three, five, seven days resting, recovering, waiting for weather, healing, training. Then up to camp three, back down. Up to camp four, push for the summit, all the way back down, all while you're dealing with people complaining, whining, moaning about how hard it is. People uh, on the season I was there, nine passed away every season. Uh, some number of people pass away. It's just a, it's a given on the mountain. Um, and you're you're in between minus 10 and minus 40 degree temperatures with the wind whipping around you, making it like up to up to minus 90 degrees with the wind chill factor. Avalanches are collapsing around you. The ice is cracking underneath you. And probably the next question is going to be like, well, what would make somebody so crazy to do that? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, actually, that's on my mind, because when you said 10 days 
to walk to base camp. Give give me and my listeners an idea. Where is base camp? How far is that? If it was level, if it was a level um, level mountain, let's say that sounds silly, but let's say I live in Houston, Texas. There are no yeah. mountains or hills in Houston. So how far is base camp in terms of straight mileage? Okay, so Nepal is the side that I climb from. The summit of Mount Everest makes the border between Tibetan China and Nepal. So for reference where that is, if you look at India, that pointy thing that sticks into the uh, Indian Ocean, it's directly north of India. And the way that the climb works is you land in Kathmandu, Nepal, then you take this tiny little airplane to a village called Lukla. And the airport is built into the side of a hill and it's not a full straight line it looks like a hook uh or like a uh yeah like a fishing hook um but but a landing strip and so when the the pilot lands he's actually facing uphill because it's not flat so he has to come down low aim the plane up land on the uphill runway and then come to a hockey stop at the end of the hook in order to stop you the, the airplane i mean there's no space but that's the best they could find yeah, I just saw a YouTube video about the 15 most dangerous airports in the world. That's and in there. Yeah, it is. And I'm like, holy, I mean, you don't, you don't take like a, a 747 in there. These are like little planes because the runway is like really short. But again, back to my original question, I'm really fascinated on this. If I were to walk the distance from the beginning to base camp in terms mm-hmm. of mileage, because I run every day, so I'm curious to know. You know, how long, if I just walk that mileage straight, how long, how many miles is it? Um, the exact number, I don't know the answer to that. I'm going to guess okay. it's around 60 to 80 miles. Really? Wow. I had no idea. Wow. We're going to Google this right now. Yes. Yes. We're gonna, this is, this is live folks. We, this is the way <laughs> I do my shows. I don't Here, do any let me Google that, that for you. It's 130 <laughs> kilometers long. Uh, round trip, 65 kilometers each way. Now that's that just the base camp. That's just to base camp. And that doesn't wow. in that, that doesn't compute because of the altitude. Like yes. in the States, if you go for a 65 kilometer trek, that's going to be, or, or in Canada or wherever the listeners are right now, if, if you go on a trek like that, you're like, Oh cool. Well, I can knock out like 20 in a day on a hard day, but you're not taking into the, the, the account that you get up to 14,000 feet on like day three or four, and that's the highest point in the contiguous U.S. Wow. You're, you're up there in totally thin air. The oxygen is about a third of the, it's a 50% at 14,000 feet. And at 29,000 feet on the summit, it's a third of the oxygen that you and I are breathing right now. So it makes the, the trekking incredibly slow going. Um, there are donkeys and yaks that are going past you. Um, Sherpa are incredible. You've got trekking Sherpa who carry like 300 pounds up to 300 pounds on their backs. And they're walking around in flip-flops and they make this <laughs> trek. It's insane. Uh, and we're there like with 30 or 40 pounds on our ba- on our backs with like full hiking boots, trekking poles and just huffing and puffing and dying. And you see this guy that's like five foot two trek past you in flip-flops and just leave you in the dust. It's incredible. Wow. Well, I've watched several documentaries about, you know, climbing Mount Everest. And one of the things I saw recently, which really irritates me, and I'd like to know your thoughts on this. These people who go up to Mount Everest, they have the Sherpas carrying everything. And I think 
if you have someone carrying all your all your baggage, your luggage, whatever you want to, whatever word you want to use it, and all you have to do is climb, I don't think that counts as much as someone who carries their own stuff. I saw one show where a lot of rich people, apparently this is a thing with rich people, the Sherpas would bring bring tents and stoves and food, and it's like. Are you kidding me? So they, they they showed them sitting at their tables and, you know, they're having their you know dinners and the Sherpas are around them. You know, like, what is this? It's just gotten so crazy because back in the day, they didn't bring restaurants with them up the hike. <laughs> yeah, that's a I mean, that's a great point. Uh, I I definitely think the Sherpa are the heroes of Everest. And on the expedition that I went on, um, I had a Sherpa with me the entire way. He was my guide. He was my hero. He was my leader on the trip, um, and we work we work as a team. And so, was I setting up my own tent? Did I carry the bulk majority of my equipment on a day to day basis? Absolutely. Did I also accept help when it was offered? I did. Um, and I don't I don't think that there are many climbers who will say that I'll climb Mount Everest unsupported. And those who did, who were there, actually ended up not summiting because they got in a fight because the this is their mountain this is the sherpa's mountain and it's also their livelihood so in a large way it's it's i i believe and felt that it was respectful to accept help when it was offered mm. you know i you obviously made the summit, but I know I've heard stories of people. I've read books where people have gotten so close. They could see the summit, but maybe there's a storm coming or whatever the case may be. That has got to be so painful to be so close and realize maybe you're having physical issues, health issues, whatever the case may be. You have to turn around and go back. That has got to be heart so heartbreaking. Do you know anybody who's come so close and had to turn around and go back? I know many people who were on my expedition team who got turned around and had to go back. But I can tell you from firsthand experience, I was turned around. My first oxygen bottle was completely empty uh, on the on the trek uh, or on the on the summit night on the, the the climb up, and I went for about two hours without oxygen. Um, oh wow! And that put my lungs into a state of total distress. Uh, there's conditions it's called pulmonary edema which is your lungs are swelling, and cerebral edema, which is when your brain starts swelling. Both can be totally lethal conditions. Um, we finally found a second oxygen bottle, and I start climbing up further and further towards the top. I get to the Hillary Step, which is the last major fe feature before mm -hmm. you can see the summit. And um, Nuru, who is my guide, who's with me, knocks on the oxygen canister twice, and it makes this heart-wrenching, hollow, pinging noise. And he says, there's no more air in this one. We got to go back. I'm like, you're kidding. I can see the summit. I'm looking at it right now. Like that, like I could, can't we just like run up and put a pinky toe on it and then go back down? <laughs> like, come on, man. He's like, no, like you are, you're going to die. You have barely any oxygen left and we can't figure out how to seal this up. So I had trusted him the entire climb and trust him now. Start walking back down the mountain, leaving this 17 year old dream behind me after Maybe five minutes of walking back, I get back to the top of the Hillary Step, and out of nowhere appears a guide named Justin Murley out of uh, Seattle, Washington. And he's like, congratulations, you made it. I'm like, I'm turning around. I, I have to go back. He says, oh, let me check out what's going on with your oxygen. And he looks at it, and he takes the regulator, and he dips it into his tea. 
I'm like, what is this guy doing? <laughs> like he, he unscrews his tea bottle and there's steam coming out of it. It's minus 30 degrees and he's dipping his, I'm like, come on, dude, you're, we, you're going to kill me up, up here. I need that. Give it back. And he pulls it out, <laughs> screws it back into the, um, screws the regulator back into the oxygen bottle. And he says, okay, you're good to go. I'm like, what are you talking about? He says, what does water do when it freezes? It expands. <laughs> And we watch there in real time as the negative 30 degree temperatures freezes that water and expands it. And it seals the leak that was causing me to lose that oxygen. He says, wow. go up, get to the summit, take your pictures. You're still on borrowed time, but I've bought you some more and then get back down. Um, and so I know very well what it's like to turn your back on it. Um, and I had that, that blessing of Justin showing up and giving me that second chance. Um, wow. does it suck? Does it suck? Yeah. And I've talked to people who didn't make it, uh, and didn't have that second chance. Uh, and, uh, I think it haunts them. So how far away from the summit, like you said, you said you could see it in terms of, uh, we can't go distances because you're so up high in terms of, uh, time. If you see the summit, like the point where you're going to turn around, you had to turn around cause your oxygen levels. Um, how far of a walk is that? Give my, me and my listeners some perspective on that. I would have guessed distance wise, it was about three to 500 yards somewhere in that wow. distance. But time wise, that probably would have taken me 30 to 45 minutes because it's really so okay. slow at that altitude. Wow. Now, I've heard stories of some people, not many, have gone to the top without oxygen. Do these people have some kind of specialized training? Do Sherpas have oxygen? Tell us about that. Great question. Uh, I think it's still just under 100 people who have ever summited Everest without oxygen because you, the human body just can't function that far away from sea level. It, like You just don't work. Um, however, Sherpa are born above usually 14,000 feet above sea level, and so their their bodies are just acclimatized uh, over generations of, of uh, genetics uh, to be superior humans at that altitude. They just have the advantage, period. Um, do they still use oxygen? Many do when they're guiding, but most don't when they climb on their own. Um, Westerners or anybody who's not born with a with a heritage or genetic lineage above that altitude, um, there are very few people who have gone. Like Ed Viesters is uh, the guy who first American who climbed all fourteen eight thousand meter peaks in the world, and they did some diagnoses of his lungs, and he had one third extra lung capacity than the average wow. human. Um, and that's what gave him that advantage. And um, I mean, it's not the only factor, obviously skills and, and dedication and hard work goes into it, of course, but he still had that extra oomph, which I don't have. You know, my lungs suck at altitude. Now, before I ask you any more questions, I have to go back because you did talk about, you wanted to talk about the why. And I think everyone listening to this conversation yeah. is going to want to know, okay, I get you're a climber, John. We get that. But Mount Everest, I mean, this is a huge undertaking. I mean, this is not something you do on a weekend with your buddies. So what is your why for climbing Mount Everest? It shifted as I climbed bigger and bigger mountains with always having Everest in mind. At first, it started out of uh, from a place of displaying my, I wanted to be, I was from ego. It was, I want to look like a total badass and climb this mountain and like, prove my <laughs> mountain man worth a hundred, like fully honest with you. I was in my twenties when I started that. I appreciate that. <laughs> and I was like, I just want to look like a total, like 
stud to everybody in the world. <laughs> well, the more mountains, I appreciate I, your honesty. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> the more mountains I climbed, though, the less I started caring about what others thought. You know, I'd get up some climbs and people that I thought were awesome and nobody cared. I'd get, uh, I wouldn't even succeed on some climbs and some people would say, oh, that's amazing. And I saw that there was this disconnect and I also started just valuing myself more. And then it became proving something to myself is do I have what it takes to dig deep, to see what's within me and to conquer my inner demons and the, the voices that we all have in our minds of you can't do this. You're not good enough to make the summit. You don't have what it takes or your body hurts so bad. I wanted to learn how to overcome those because they show up in so many more places in life than just the mountains. Well, after I got that under my belt and where I am now, my real why and my motivation for climbing still to this day is to remind myself that I can be at peace amidst the chaos that's happening all around me. Wow. When there's a storm, when there's the inability to breathe, when you've got other people who are complaining and I'm able to sit at peace and know fully well that I just am, like I am the mountain, that's what my why is now. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that. I really appreciate that. So as you're trekking up the mountain, is there any point or points, uh, plural, that you said to yourself, what am I doing? Uh, you know, I'm just going to go and turn around this. I can't, can't do it. Did you, did you go through that or was that not an issue? Oh, every single day. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> every minute, actually. Um, the most pronounced moment that I remember having that sensation was doing what we call the first rotation from base camp uh, up to camp one. So you wake up at one o'clock in the morning because you want to go through the first feature, which is called the Kumbu Icefall. It's a 2000 foot tall frozen waterfall with massive blocks of ice. It's a glacier um, that's just cascading down this hill. And so it's like basically a frozen whitewater rapid. Um, that's 2000 feet tall. And I wake up at one o'clock in the morning because you want to, you want to climb when it's coldest out so that the, that structure will stay, has the best chance of staying in place and not collapsing. Ah, and as I, okay. right, so we climb throughout the night with headlamps wanting to get to wherever you're going before the sun rises, the sun hits the ice. And that's when it's like, okay, everything's unstable for the rest of the day. Wherever you got to is where you got to. Um, so I, I'm waking up and I feel the floor underneath me shaking and cracking at base camp because base camp isn't on dirt. It's still on that glacier. So all throughout the night, you can feel this, these fissures and splitting and pings and groans and pangs of this ice cracking underneath your body. Mm. And so I just woken up, I'm in the sleeping bag, all this is going on around me An avalanche I hear in the distance you hear them throughout the night, but I hear this roar of an avalanche and then the, the floor cracking underneath me. And I flick my headlamp on and I kind of have this like real confront yourself moment of, do I really want to do this right now? And uh, I, I chose that, yeah, it's, it's still worth the risk for me. Wow. So when is the best time of year to summit Mount Everest. I, I can't remember what the documentary said that there are certain times you can go 
And there's certain times you can't go. There's not like a great time to go where it's like 75 degrees and, you know, gorgeous. <laughs> it's going to be cold no matter where you go. But when is theoretically the best time to go if you want to summit Mount Everest? Yeah, there's no time where you're like in a meadow singing with like Sound of Music. <laughs> That's not a thing. Um, so Everest sits in the jet stream. Same thing the airplanes fly up and get into. And the reason one side of it is blank, you don't see snow on it, is because there's 180 miles an hour of winds blasting the side of a mountain for the vast wow. majority of the year. When the Asian monsoon starts to the south east of Everest, it pushes that jet stream north usually, sometimes south, and that buys you a little weather window um, of still-ish air where it's you know only 20 to 30 miles an hour usually to get up to the top. Um, and that's about two weeks long, you know, sometimes 10 days, sometimes seven, wow. sometimes, sometimes 20 days. But that's why in this last season, you saw this big, this picture of a big line of climbers yeah. all going on the same day because they'd been waiting and waiting and waiting for this, um, this monsoon to stop. So that's not like it happens or not the, excuse me for, they were waiting for the um, jet stream to be pushed off. So that picture isn't representative of what's going on every single day. That was just a function of all these antsy climbers wanting to get their summit bid in. Um, so you have an opportunity that's in the spring to get specifically to the question. Um, Mid-May is when that happens. The other smaller opportunity, which is much more difficult, is in the fall. Um, and I think that's late September when that season, late September, early October, when that window opens, but it's a smaller window and sometimes it doesn't happen at all. Got overwhelm? Then you need to get my free guide, 10 quick ways to conquer overwhelm. This free guide will help you quickly deal with overwhelm so you can get back to making the impact you've dreamed of. Get your copy for free at overwhelmsucks.com. So do people not try to climb the mountain outside these two windows? Correct. Wow. Nobody, nobody even attempts it. It's like it would be stupid to go up into 200 miles an hour wind. That's insane. Okay, I got to ask you a real question because I'm a guy and uh, I got to ask this question. So how do you go to the bathroom when you're summoning Mount Everest? Because <laughs> obviously you don't have nice, comfortable showers and heated bathrooms and stuff like that. You know, I look at this is who I am, John. Okay, this is I, and I know there's listeners going, yeah, that's a great question. How do you go to the bathroom when you're summoning Mount Everest since like a billion degrees below zero? Not yeah. really, <laughs> okay, you went there, so uh, I'll go there too. We have a joke that we would say amongst ourselves that the, the hardest part of climbing Mount Everest is trying to find it uh, underneath three inches, three inches of down, and it's that cold outside. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> um, you, you go in a bottle. You put the bottle inside your down suit, fill up the bottle, and then dump the bottle outside of the down suit. So you keep all your bits protected. Wow. Yeah, I was going to say, you... Uh... Yeah, you don't want to, yeah, we don't want to go there. And how about women climbers? Because women climbers don't have, let's say, a penis. It's a family show. We're not saying anything vulgar. I mean, how do women do it? I mean, it's like most women, you know, they go to the bathroom and they, they pull the pants down. But you can't do that on Mount Everest. You'll freeze to death. Um, there's a awesome invention that has allowed women mountaineers to um, have almost the same level of ease of that function in mountaineering. It's a funnel. There's a, wow. there's a funnel that's shaped and they come in different sizes and shapes that you just find the one that fits your body and 
create some penis <sighs> for you. <laughs> you really got to want to, I mean, that's crazy. I mean, this is crazy. <laughs> uh, just thinking about that. Okay. So another question I have for you is I heard that there's um, someone created the, and correct me if I'm wrong, this may have been uh, not true. Uh, people are coming up with helicopters that can fly pretty high uh, up Mount Everest, how, if that is true, how high can they, they can't go to the summit, can they? I believe that the highest, I might be wrong here, but I think a, a helicopter within the last two or three years from this recording went and either got close to the summit or like was able to just like ding one of its landing rods, whatever they're called onto the summit. That's cheating. Was, that, if think, someone pays for that, that's cheating. <laughs> So, so that's like a, a pilot with, that doesn't a helicopter pilot without without doors on the helicopter, no seats back there, every bit of weight possible, completely okay, so, removed. So, so climbers can't like pay a million dollars and be up this Absol- amount. Absolutely okay. not. Absolutely okay. not. So, for rescue efforts, the highest that's there's been a rescue is Camp Three, which is at twenty three thousand five hundred feet. But even those are incredibly dangerous for not only the pilot, but everybody else who's climbing on the mountain. I mean, with the, with the air that thin, a gust comes and throws that helicopter off of its uh, trajectory and slams it into the side of the mountain. I mean, most pilots wouldn't even consider that. So the highest that you could like get taken to would be base camp. But even if you went there, you're not acclimatized. So it's actually counterproductive to feel like you're cheating your way up versus walking. Um, Because those 10 days are really critical in helping your your bloodstream uh, develop the red blood cells, which are what carry the oxygen to your brain and your heart. You know, I saw a show a couple years ago on the Travel Channel about the rescue people on Mount Everest. They had these helicopters and stuff like that. And to watch these episodes, I wish the show would keep going on, but I guess, you know, how many many episodes you're going to do? It's all on Mount Everest. It's just insane because it's not like here in Houston where it's like 70 degrees outside right now and you oxygen works just right. And, you know, you can have have, have your hands and stuff like that. When you're doing a rescue up on really – cold areas of the mountain it's totally different you so you gotta have a good pilot you gotta have the the medical guy has got to be uh properly trained for all this stuff and they were talking about people having heart pains you know chest pains and stuff like that heart pain chest pain maybe they were heart pains because they're heart, heart pains they can't well. make the yeah. they can't make the they can't make the summit but it's it's a real thing and you know there are people who have died on mount everest and they just left the bodies there because they're frozen and now a morbid question did you see any of those on your trek up yeah. Um, wow. And it's not because they're frozen. It's because at that altitude, it would take a team of 12 to 20 people t- in a body recovery effort that would put all of those people at risk. Um, wow. And so are, are there are there like mounds of bodies like in some gruesome like Holocaust style grave? No, of course not. Um, but the bodies are pulled off to the side and buried in the ice and there are grave sites on the way up and they're all at the highest, most exposed places. Um, there are, there are bodies that are moved from the main trail, but you can, you can see them. I did, um, experience up close and personal, the deaths of two climbers on summit night. Um, and that was a, it was a harrowing thing to deal with in the moment. And it was a harrowing thing to process afterwards. Um, and I can go into detail of those if you like, but they were, um, for me, it was the, part of Everest that I grew the most from as a human being after the climb. 
Yeah, go into that really briefly for us. Uh, I don't want to, you know, totally gross out our uh, our listeners, but go briefly about you know when you saw this happening. Um, sure. So on Summit Night, when I left camp, there was a guy who was being brought back down to camp with uh, with a team trying to trying to rescue him. Um, and when I got back to Camp Four, um, he was uh, he he was passed away in his tent, um, and nobody had noticed. I, I don't think the moment that he actually passed away because the tent flyer, the door was open on the tent, and so when I came back to mine, it was facing his, and there he, there was this you know, passed away guy just kind of s- sitting upright and looking at me, um, wow. or not not looking at me. So that was that was the first one I saw, uh, the first person I saw. The second was more harrowing uh, in that I was about at 28,000 feet above sea level, so around two or three in the morning. Um, and his team had left him thinking that he was dead. He was frozen into the ice, and I saw these reflectors um, that I thought was like a backpack that was left, um, you know, like light reflectors because my headlamp yeah. is filling in. And when I got closer, you know, I'm just in the zone. I've got my head down and I'm just trying to watch my breathing and control my energy levels. And when I got closer to him, he started moving. And everyone who was in front of me said, no, he was gone. But for whatever reason, he started moving when I was there. And I did everything I could for as long as I could before I started feeling myself freezing to try and rescue him or revive him. And um, Nuru kept saying, come, nothing to do, come, nothing to do, come, nothing to do. Um, And what I think now in hindsight was going on was... It is just kind of a spasm uh, of like ah, the last bits okay. of energy. So I don't, he, he was, he was not conscious, um, but that created post-traumatic stress disorder that I recognized in December or when I finally admitted that something was up with my, with my mindset. And I spent a good amount of time in therapy working through this trauma and I fully, I, I would like to tell anybody out there, if you're going through something tough right now, or if you've gone through something traumatic as a firefighter or a doctor or a military service member, or uh, you've just, you've seen a car accident or even a bad breakup or relationship splitting up that is truly like rocked you to your core, it can be the impetus for post-traumatic growth. I think we focus too much on the post-traumatic stress and we think that it's like this permanent condition that will never change or you'll never be the same again, which is a bunch of BS. You can get stronger and you can come out looking at your life with a healthier mindset if you go to the right people who know how to set the bone straight, so to speak. Very true. Thank you for pointing it out. So when you got to the summit of Mount Everest, two questions. Mm-hmm. Number one, how long were you able to stay there? And number two, what did you do at the top of the, of the world? So the oxygen's running out, and I snap a photo as soon as I get there. It timestamps. I'm like trying to warm the camera up because it, after the first photo, the battery shuts the camera off because uh, it's oh, so wow. cold. Right, right? It just sucks the energy. I'm like, great, one photo of the horizon, <laughs> and that's all I'm going to get up here? Come on. Um, so I put it in my breast pocket. I'm trying to warm it up. I start looking around and like in disbelief that there's no more mountain to climb. It was kind of like this panic of like, wow. wait wait, where's, I got to be taking more steps. I've been taking steps up for two months. Where are the other steps to go up? Like I didn't register that that was it. Um, I'm looking out at the sun coming up over Tibetan China, this huge, massive plateau 
on the other side, Mount Everest shadow is being cast for dozens of miles into the distance. And I recognize peaks that are 20,000, 25,000 foot mountains. I'm looking down on those and their shadows are being cast out over the horizon as well. So it was just magical moment. I start crying at the beauty of both accomplishing this dream and the physical beauty of it all. And then the tears start freezing on my face. And oh I'm like goodness. trying to wipe these like chunks of ice off of my eyes because my eyelids are being frozen shut. Um, and, and then I'm like, okay, picture, 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 pull out the camera. And I get Nuru um, and myself in a few, I think we got four extra photos before the camera shut off again um, of us on the summit. And the last timestamp was 11 minutes from the first one and that's wow. when we started walking down and that's the entirety of the time that i spent on the summit so when you left the summit when you started going back down what is that called not not something what's what's on the way down what do you call uh, it the descent the descent. descent i couldn't think of the word so <laughs> from the time you started descending to the time you got all the way back way past base camp all the way back to ground well it's still up in the mountains, but how long did that take you? Because I probably did it take you longer to go up than down. Absolutely, yep. It takes longer to go up than down, but down in my mind is just as important, even though time frame wise it's shorter. Um, that's where most injuries and deaths occur in mountaineering is on the way down. Um, you're tricked into thinking that the work is done. Your steps get lazy, ah, and okay. um, and you're exhausted, and so you let your guard down. And in mountains. If one thing goes wrong, like if a finger gets cold and you don't get that finger warm, that cascades into a heap of other problems. Well, suddenly you can't unzip your backpack because uh, your fingers are too cold and then you don't have food because you couldn't get into your backpack and then you don't have energy and so on and so on uh, until okay. you pass away. Right. Um, so time wise, it I summited at 551 a.m. and I got back to camp two at 8 p.m. Um if you rewind so you just, from you there, just, you just skip. You just skip like the the camp five, four, and three. You just went right down to two. Uh, there's no camp five. I get to okay. camp four. Spent about thirty minutes there. Um, realized that my lungs were filling up with fluids. It was pulmonary edema starting. Oh, I radioed wow. down. I radioed down to base camp. I said, "Guys, I don't. Uh, I'm coming down now." And they're like, "Yeah, absolutely. Start moving." I um, skipped camp three completely and got to camp two uh, as fast as I could because. The only thing that truly works for altitude conditions is getting down. That's like, there's no medicine that, that actually heals. It only buys you time. Wow. Well, the final question I have for you before we talk about your book is when did you get warm again? I, I can imagine you being <laughs> up in this frigid temperature for months. At what point did you say, oh my gosh, I am completely thawed out now? Uh, I'm still waiting for that moment, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I can't imagine you. I mean, I'm hot showers. You probably never enjoyed a hot shower more than when that first hot shower after you came back, came back. That's, that's an accurate statement. Um, <laughs> the, when you're in, yeah, minus 90 degree, here was what actually what was crazy is I live in Las Vegas. And so I flew, I, I had minus 91 degree with the wind chill weather on Everest and, and, 10 days later, I arrived back in Las Vegas where it was something like 110 degrees. My goodness. 
And so I had a 200 degree temperature <laughs> shift. <laughs> that and, is uh, crazy. That was completely overwhelming to my system. Like I, my, my brain couldn't comprehend what was happening in that heat. Wow. Yeah. Cause I know sometimes I, this is how a wuss I am. Sometimes I go to a store and it's really cold and I come out and sit in my car with the windows all rolled up and I just like thaw out. And that's probably like 68 degrees in the store. You were like minus <laughs> 90. So you're, you're a better man than I am, John. You're like, um, why do they have to keep this lettuce so cold? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's talk about your book. Uh, tell us sure. uh, your title of the book again and uh, what prompted you to read it. So tell us about your book. This book is called The Warrior Challenge, Eight Quests for Boys to Grow Up with Kindness, Courage, and Grit. And this book is partially about my mountaineering stories, but it's more examples of heroes and role models throughout history who exemplify virtues and values, specifically for young men ages 10 to 16 years old. Um, and so like throughout this book, you're confronted by the reader is confronted by a Maasai warrior to hunt a lion, and that teaches stepping up, like being a better human being. Then you're Danny Wei jumping over the Great Wall of China, and you learn self-awareness, how to observe what's going on in yourself, what's going on uh, in your relation to other people. Then you're barreling down the, uh, the Baja Peninsula in an off-road vehicle, learning how to choose what your values are in life. Then I come in and I teach what happened on Everest with this guy who passed away and talk about vulnerability and the importance of being emotionally honest. It covers boundaries. Uh, it covers grit and resilience. It covers how to avoid toxic relationships and not be a toxic human being to others. And it covers equality and how to find your purpose in life. All of these um, principles coupled up with the most insane, awesome adventurers that or stories of adventurers that I've ever heard in all my travels. And where can we get the book? If you go to Amazon, uh, look for the bright red cover. Just type in The Warrior Challenge and um, please leave a review for me. That would definitely help it as well. If you want to uh, follow uh, what's going on with the book beyond the purchase, then head to warriorchallengebook.com. And there I have some some bonus resources. Um, for and, and really, if you want to make a difference in the world, Start with the young man who's in your life, whether it's your ne your nephew, your grandson, your son, a student of yours. Gift this book to him. I truly believe that it will make a massive difference in the trajectory of his life and that he will avoid a lot of the struggles that you and I have had to figure out as as we've as we've grown into the men that we are today. Um, I, I figure it's so much easier to make a young man into a healthy man than it is to go do, go fix a guy who's, who's still a, a man boy. Um, mm -hmm. And this is, this, this book is what sets young men up right to become healthy functioning men who look after their societies and look and know how to look after themselves. Wow. Well, sounds like a really interesting book. You graciously sent me a copy. I haven't read it yet, but I will. It's on my get on that mark. Read. Get on that mark. Uh, I'm a slow reader, John. I'm a slow reader because I really <laughs> like to take the time. To Fortunately enjoy the for you, there's an audio book too. Okay, okay. <laughs> I'm so, not taking excuses. <laughs> okay. Well, one final question: Where can we go to see these pictures that you took on the top of Mount Everest? Oh, that's a great question as well. Um, head to johnbeedy.com, J-O-H-N-B-E-E-D-E.com. And I'm releasing documentaries of each of the seven summits. 
So oh, wow. uh, mountain on every continent. Um, I've done one that's up to Everest base camp at this point. I've done Vincent, which is the tallest in Antarctica, um, and uh, Denali in Alaska. And uh, the Everest one is coming along. You can also go to my Instagram to search for John Beatty. Follow me there and you'll be able to see some of the pictures from Everest. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. I mean, I really geeked out on this interview. I normally don't geek out with interviews because I've done so many of them, but I am so amazed. I'm talking to someone who was actually at the top of the world and it wasn't an easy uh, trek for you. And I appreciate you being completely vulnerable uh, with us for that, because, you know, if you don't know a lot about Mount Everest, I don't know as much as you, but I've watched enough documentaries. I've read enough books to know it's not a walk in the park. It's a lot of effort. A lot of people die in there. And I am like, so thankful you came on the show and shared your insights with us. So thank you so much, Mark. Thank you for having me. Thanks for the awesome questions and for your interest. And it was a joy to be with you and everybody listening. Thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode of the Mark Struchowski podcast. Before you go, it would mean the world to me, and I mean the world, if you would do me a quick favor. Share this episode with one person you know that needs to hear it. Because life tends to get in the way, do it right now. I'm on a mission to help as many people as I can, and you sharing this episode with someone would help me on that mission. Thanks again for listening, and I'll talk to you again real soon.